Dear guests, to understand contemporary security problems and changes in the international system, it's important to understand as many takes and perspectives as possible. And Russian perspective is no exception here, given the war in Ukraine. However, by Russian perspective, I do not necessarily mean Russian official state perspective. What I mean by Russian perspective is the myriads of ways to look at this conflict through the lenses of Russian people, of Russian citizens. And depending on where they stand and where they live, they can have drastically different takes on this conflict, from supportive to um, opposing to utterly cynical and so on and so forth. And it's also important to understand that those perspectives are fluid, uncertain and constantly changing. So keeping this in mind, I want to introduce you this conversation with Vava that we recorded in December 2022, so around three months ago, where we tried to disentangle a little bit my personal reflections on Russia, maybe previous experiences in and with Russia, and different aspects of Russian history, culture, and so on and so forth. I think it turned out to be a very interesting conversation that uh, first and foremost uh, reveals the whole complexity of the issue. I don't think it gives uh, any certain answers. Again, it points to the complexity of uh, of Russia and uh, of uh, feelings that one can have connected to Russia in this or that way. And I guess uh, opens a difficult but necessary reflective mechanism to understand better Russian society and the future of Russia. So if you like the podcast, please share with your friends and as always, enjoy. So I guess my first question, or actually two questions mm-hmm. to you would be, what did it mean to be Russian before February 24th, okay. 2022? And what does it mean to be Russian Ooh. right now? Okay. Do you think there has been a difference? Was it clear actually before what did it mean yeah. to be Russian? Is it clear now? What changed? Uh, that's, that's a hard one. <laughs> I know. I decided to start with the heavy guns. Yes, but we don't go. We don't don't choose the e- the easy path. <laughs> uh-huh. um, interesting one. Yeah, I think, of course, like being Russian is deeply connected to speaking Russian language. I feel so. I mean, I was raised in Russia, so it's easier for me to say what what does it mean to be Russian from this perspective because I also have Russian passport. Yeah. <laughs> it's also, you need to be like very material because like that's those things, they define you more than you think. I mean, if something happens, like, you know, I could be um, deported to Russia or I mean, if, like Germany can just simply cancel my uh, residence permit, so to say, with no good reason and the only country I could really go is Russia. Maybe Belarus uh, as well. <laughs> maybe Belarus as well, or Kazakhstan. But it's still like, you know, you go with a Russian passport, so to speak. 
So um, I would go with a very <laughs> lame story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so maybe maybe having Russian passport means that you're Russian. Um, but it's 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 a lame one. Uh, of course, it's uh, this, this, this is I guess something. <laughs> this is I guess something that comes down even to the Russian language, which is yeah. uh, I guess hard to translate into English. In Russian, you have the differ- differentiation between Ruski mm-hmm. and Rasiyski. Mm-hmm. So one which is basically ethnically Russian, yes. and one which is someone belonging to like the broader Russian state. Yes, I've seen a nice analogy uh, to the differences between English and British. Okay, so English is ethnically English, and mm-hmm. British is belonging mm-hmm. to the British and. Empire, Empire or the, the or right. Great Britain, basically. So True. I guess maybe the difference mm-hmm. between Ruski mm-hmm. and Rasiski is sort of the same. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if these differences are more pronounced now than they were before. Um, mm-hmm. Are people who are not Ruski are they still Rasiski? Mm-hmm. I wonder. Yeah, but I guess like as you as you suggested, the, there was a shift uh, on February twenty fourth when, of course, the war started because then. It completely changes your perception of this world, especially mm-hmm. your perception of European security or your perception of European politics, because I guess it forces you to pick sides. Like before pre-war, you were quite comfortable in maintaining this position that, yes, I mean, I, I don't support Putin personally, but it's not that I'm anti-Russian or like, you know, all those uh, liberals who say, yeah, like, you know, let's topple Putin, have a revolution, and then what? Like, you know, I, mm-hmm. I for example, was always... I always can oppose this because I don't see anything good coming out of this. But uh, after after the war, it, it, it's tricky now because it's almost like the whole situation pushes you to pick sides and situation both in Russia domestically and outside Russia when people like, you know, punish you just for being Russian mm-hmm. in many different small kind of ways. Um, so, I mean, I would still go that I'm just Russian, mm-hmm. first of all, because I still have a... Russian citizenship, and, you know, I don't have any other citizenship yet. Yet. <laughs> yet. <laughs> the key phrase here, but, um, yeah, I would say, and also because I still feel I belong to this country, belong to the people who live, like, there, and I still spend most of my time in Russia. So I think I, I'll just go with saying, yes, there, there is a difference, and this difference exactly in this fact that you have to pick sides. You're either, there's nothing in between. So mm-hmm. either Russian and you um, like just support the war, even not maybe uh, actively, but in a sense you still understand that this is like your like you know kind of like brothers fighting in this war, almost citizens of your country, or you don't support, and then you kind of like become like immediately anti-Russian. Yeah, so you're either with us or against us. Yes, which is like a very tricky, but I don't think it's just. Um, just Putin is doing this, or just Russia is doing this. It's also like people in the West doing this, because they. I mean, of course, there are so many stories that uh, in uh, Czech universities, or I mean, Polish universities, or Latvian universities, or what have you, they force students to, to you know, to sign this petition against the war, or they force them to say publicly that they are against the war, which is like obnoxious a little mm-hmm. bit, because I mean. Those are free people, and I mean, if they are already abroad, I mean, it means something in terms of they are anti-Putin, most likely. So why do you push them to pick sides? <laughs> do you think that most of Russian emigrees are anti-Putin? Yeah, that's why they leave. <laughs> okay. Because, I mean, they all, I mean, I would say they all have uh, material capacity to leave, so mm-hmm. they have money, and they make this conscious decision, so, you know, and, like, leaving is always very much more difficult than staying, obviously, because you invest so so much resources, you invest your kind of mental capacity. Um, yes, true, true. And it's 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 always harder to leave than stay. But, you know, if those people were just satisfied in the country, for example, if I 
was satisfied uh, with, with like developments in Russia, I would just stay. I would think I, I don't think I would just leave the country for no good reason. Yeah, yeah, so. that <laughs> makes perfect sense. So let let's go back into exactly to the time before you left. Yes, we already talked about this a little bit before. So let's go back to uh, the period in your life where you slowly became aware of political events. You know, yes. when you were kids, roughly when you're you know a teenager, kids you start zeros. following news mm-hmm. and you start slowly like knowing okay there's this party and there's these guys these politicians Mm -hmm. so back in the day when you first became politically aware what did you think of russia and russian politics what was your take on it yes i think i was very politically active since like early childhood since 12 years old or 14 years old i mean i i'm a kid of zeros so to say i was growing in zeros and the whole situation was in russia pretty liberal I think I, I, I can say um, with a certainty that Russia back then was a liberal country. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, in, in not a liberal in some utopic sense. Of course, there were problems, there was corruption, there were like, you know, killings of journalists, all of this stuff. And like slowly country was becoming also authoritarian. But like by and large, in terms of like, I mean, I never experienced... Like teachers telling me, oh, you know, you're not allowed to say this or that. Like, you know, we could discuss everything in class. We could discuss everything outside class. Mm-hmm. People took drugs, whatever, like you think about, like, you know, like completely like um, Western type of experience in a sense of very free, just free uh, or free from any interference uh, of any authority, so to speak. And that was my kind of experience in, in the early childhood. And of course, like I remember having like a very fierce debates with my. I actually had a party back in the day, yeah. <laughs> even organized like nationalist party in my school because I thought like, you know, why don't you, like why don't the young people in Russia have a nationalist party, so to speak? I think it was like had like a fancy name, like something like a, a nationalist democratic party of Russia. So Damn, say. <laughs> sounds very serious. <laughs> yeah, because I was reading a lot on uh, basically Russian civil war and this period of time, like late Russian Empire. And to me, it was fascinating, you know, how many ideas uh, back in the day were in Russian politics. And of course, Russia in 1905 or 1907, after my first uh, revolution in Russia, it became kind of like this constitutional democracy and with a parliament and like the number of parties actually quite large. Oh, yeah. I mean, they had like all sorts of, for every taste, so to speak, they were nationalists, democrats. Uh, like, you know, Bolsheviks, Mensheviks, everyone. <laughs> and then remember all of the different national minorities who were represented yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the parliament, which were hundreds of them. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I remember myself actually having debates about like, you know, oh, it's better to have Medvedev for the second term, for example, because he's a liberal and Putin is and like, you know, he's a conservative, so to speak. And um, yeah, I mean, that's my, my first... Memories definitely are all about, like, you know, being actively politically, mm-hmm. like having, I guess, good hopes, because, I mean, as such, the country was booming, especially Moscow was definitely booming, and it felt like just you, you were living, I mean, everything was, was good, just like, you mm-hmm. know, it was, it was like 8% GDP growth, even like, Impressive. you know, um, I guess, and this is what made the whole situation pretty... Um, appealing to live there and just like was very nice uh, human experience <laughs> i guess <laughs> and what um, did you think of uh russia vis-a-vis the rest of the world did you think of russia's position in the larger global system or 
Rather no, more I mean, with domestic politics. Back in school, not really. Mm-hmm. I, I mainly read a lot on Russian history and Russian like, politics. I mean, you could say so in terms of historical, political events. I was like very passionate for it. Um, and I didn't really care about like international system. And I also, I traveled a lot like a tourist, but I never like traveled like, you know, to the conferences. I don't know, like an academic. I, I didn't really conceptualize myself. Um, so I just read a lot on Russian history and politics so that's therefore i was more or less active uh, politically uh in terms of russian yeah i would say domestic politics <laughs> i mean which of course was already type of the parliament wasn't really real parliament well and it's also tricky to say because i guess people in maybe in the west now have this conception that you know putin came to power and he was already this evil type of guy mm-hmm. with a lot of power but i mean actually not really because he, he didn't even have his own party back in the day. His party was formed only in 2002, mm-hmm. which, you know, which is, tells you something because he didn't really have this authority, but he kind of, uh, like, uh, step by step collected this power and assembled this power, power uh, in Russia we say, vertical of power, mm-hmm. so to speak, step by step, and then he became, like, really powerful. And then, of course, there was a synergy of Russian people also saying, yeah, he's a good dude. Like, you know, I remember actually my dad, like, I'm uh, like driving in his car in 2004 and I, there was like a first uh, elections like I mean, in 2004 there was presidential elections and I asked him you know who did you vote for he's like of course Putin like you know and he's like he's he's so pro business and he did this and that and like you know I don't pay as much taxes as I used to like of course I'm pro Putin I was like okay <laughs> cool, <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah so it didn't age well of course <laughs> yeah yeah things age differently yeah um so I guess you can call this period of time the liberal period in um, in Russia. Would you say things changed in 2014? I think they changed. It's it's common to say in 2012 with the protest and crackdown and protest and with Putin's re-election to, to a new term. Because, I mean, especially now sometimes I think, well... But the whole Medvedev presidency is so interesting. Like, why did they even do this? Because, I mean, obviously Medvedev was... Uh, liberal, he was openly democrat, and you know he had all sorts of ideas about democracy. He gave interviews to Russian liberal news channels that are now basically closed, and he he gave them interviews like freely, like you know in in a sense without any preparation. So like like in Western politics, so to speak, even not not everyone in Western politics does this, so to True. speak. Not every politician in the West. Um, so it's very interesting why. For example, even Putin chose uh, this type of development. Like some people, I mean, may argue that he wanted to show the West that, you know, you want like change of government, you want like Western type of system, here you go. <laughs> and actually the first uh, the first um, international visit Medvedev made, I guess he was to the United States. They were like those famous um, scenes of them eating burgers with Obama and stuff like this. Uh, so he he tried to to reconcile, I guess, and then they had, of course, uh, Pirizagruska. Pirizagruska. Yeah. Pirigruska. <laughs> yeah, Pirigruska, I guess it turned into Pirigruska for sure. <laughs> yeah. So for for those uh, unaware of what we're talking about, is that Hillary Clinton uh, met with uh, Lavrov. Yeah. And they and they prepared like this button that mm-hmm. was supposed to say reset. Reset. <laughs> but they confused the words and they uh, confused with overload or like yes. overload of tension or something like overload. this. Overload. I mean. 
definitely turned into overload. Yeah, so basically poor translation, but was very prophetic, I guess. Well, American <laughs> State Department, I guess. Lack of Russian experts. Maybe mm-hmm. that tells you something about American foreign policy. <laughs> very, exactly. Like, as you said, I remember it was actually a very great phrase uh, on, on our last previous episode. Previously. <laughs> previously on. Uh, previously on, because you said, like, yeah, Americans didn't care about the world because everyone wanted to become American, so why would you even, you know, care about, like, other cultures and other ways of thinking if everyone wants to become you, so to speak? There was, like, exactly. this hubris of, um, yeah, basically American arrogance and... Um, well, yeah. Um, yeah, and it's just interesting for me also to think now, like, and of course events changed in 2012, there were like protests, like very, very big protests, and they didn't really end, end up well. I mean, some of my actually friends from school, they, they went to this protest, and my parents definitely said, oh, what do you think about, don't, 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 don't even think about going there. Mm-hmm. But it was also, of course, like very scary. I was like, you know, 16, 17, I was like, damn, I don't want to like, you know, go there, because I mean, yeah. who, what can happen, they can beat you up. You know, <laughs> yeah, risky for sure. Yeah, and of course, and then, and then was uh, like, I mean, Russian politics, I guess, is is not that linear, like in in a way, because then Crimea happened, and there was a complete reversal, and there was complete and total wave of support mm-hmm. for Putin's actions. I guess even like unprecedented. He will, he he became like one hundred percent popular in Russia, hmm. like in every, because for example, I remember. Coming back to this Russian nationalism, and I think I would say I was a nationalist in this school, like, you know, um, and I remember, like, nationalists were actually anti-Putin, just because huh. they said, like, you know, he doesn't protect Russian interests, and he's also, like, Russian population, so to speak, Russian speakers, uh, he doesn't prioritize interests of Russian speakers, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, and, yeah, I mean... And they were, for example, very dissatisfied with the Putin. But like once the Crimea happened, like all the nationalists became pro-Putin, so to speak. Hmm. So he gained a lot of also like a support from their side, oh, and which is like very important. And his, of course, his politics in Ukraine is based on this like nationalist support, which is a big chunk of the country. I think at least like thirty percent of the population in Russia, Russian like Russian speakers. I mean, they are of course. Most of them probably nationalists. Mm-hmm. I don't have good data, but like just talking to my parents and people yeah. who I know, they're definitely like nationalists. Even though they probably wouldn't, wouldn't conceptualize themselves, but by just uh, communicating with them, you could see this. This is something very interesting. Uh, I guess I'll go back in history a little bit here. But during Soviet times, um, Russian nationalism was very well, viewed very negatively. Mm -hmm. So even going from Lenin, Lenin said that Russians used to be the oppressor nation Mm -hmm. within the Russian Empire, so now they have to atone for their sins and help the other nations of Mm -hmm. the empire progress because they have been exploited. So Russian nationalism was Mm -hmm. very negatively looked upon during the Soviet period. Maybe during Stalin times it had a little bit of a revival, but for most of the uh, Soviet history it was... Mm -hmm. Uh, persecuted so i wonder if maybe we're seeing you know this pendulum effect you had uh, many decades of soviet rule that said russian nationalism is bad and now when you have this vent that you actually can be nationalist and it's actually encouraged so it returns with strength you know the swing of the pendulum so maybe like in a sense i think i coming a little bit maybe ahead in the podcast but i think this pendulum system if it was somehow institutionalized it's it's a system that's pretty useful 
to Russia and to mm-hmm. Russian people because I do think they like the whole system switches from you know liberalism to conservatism, and there are like the swings of pendulum. Um, but I, I, I like with nationalism, I, I need to think about uh, I need to think about it a little bit more deeply. I think in general, in Soviet period of time. But it's also interesting in Soviet period of time. Of course, there couldn't be like Russian nationalists because they 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 were building an, an, an empire and the yes. one that's with a global outreach, a super national empire, super national empire. And that's why they didn't even have like you know the whole they didn't even have a republic for Russians. Yes, republic they didn't. For Russians was the, the whole Soviet republic, so Soviet people, so to say, with people yeah. of every and like many of course many leaders of Soviet uh, empire they weren't Russians like you know. Yeah, uh, neither Stalin nor Khrushchev, for example, exactly. Ukrainian, Ukrainian and Georgian, and this is this is yeah. something that not many people, I guess, understand. I guess, especially in the West, mm-hmm. people view the Soviet Union as Russia, but yeah. under a different brand, and that's a completely wrong understanding of the country. Yeah, um, Russia. There was a Russian Socialist Republic within the Soviet Union, of course, but it was actually underprivileged mm-hmm. in comparison to the legal rights in comparison to different republics. Every single different Soviet republic had their own parliament, their own communist yeah. party, <laughs> uh, their own like local government, and the mm-hmm. Russian yeah, didn't. Yeah. They, Actually, it was subordinate to the Soviet government yeah. overall. So that's something interesting to keep in mind, I guess. And still, that's why maybe it still lacks this national identity, or at least this national identity is not as crystallized as in Poland, for example. It's, it's hard sometimes to connect just on this basis of nationalism to, to, to other Russian people, mm-hmm. because it's not that well-defined. Yeah, this is Russian national identity right now is something super interesting. I also wanted to ask you about it Mm -hmm. because it mixes so many different things. You have a mixture of pride in the achievements of the Russian Mm -hmm. Empire. Yeah. There's a mixture of pride (laughs) of Soviet achievements. Yeah, true. And in theory, these two systems are completely opposite and they can never exist together. Yeah. But somehow modern Russian nationalism (laughs) manages to blend the two of them and and use them as a national identity. To me, it's super interesting. I guess they're very modern people. (laughs) Like, in in a sense, modern people always mix stuff, but but somehow in their theoretical understanding they still draw boundaries and you could also see it's so obvious in architecture because sometimes like those new churches like church of i guess like russian military oh yeah whatever they called it in english at least uh it completely blends like you know soviet red stars with like you know like russian christian symbols which doesn't make any sense like you know and i mean actually like stalin of course is an interesting figure in this regard because um, the whole, like, when they started building Soviet Union, of course, there was no idea of the country that they wanted to build. Like, mm-hmm. you know, what are we building? Like, in the 20s, they didn't even teach students history, of Russian history, or maybe some just, like, world history, but not Russian history, because they didn't know what, like, okay, what type of citizen, like, what type of ideal citizen we, we are creating here mm-hmm. in this country. And then, of course, Stalin came to power in the 30s, or you can say fully, maybe, came to power in the 30s, yeah. and... That's the moment when Stalin realized that the best way to achieve this is like to come back to this idea of Russian Empire. And but he actually mostly did that during the war. Yes, but in the war, especially also because you said and I thought about the church, and he had an agreement with the Russian church that was uh, allowed to come back, so to speak, on the basis of that it would endorse Stalin, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and like the modern Russian church still takes roots in the Stalin Stalinist church. Which is also super interesting because um, I guess it's almost like you know the, I don't know it's like it's almost like the state is its own kind of institution and like even during Stalin assembling all those pieces of influence so to speak because of course church is a very big institution 
and it has a certain impact on Russian people. Yeah. Um, and I guess people believed still in, I mean, they were still Christian even during the Soviet Empire, but they couldn't really worship it. Um, yeah. So it's, it's really interesting, of course, but like the whole change of like, you know, the swing of pendulum, as you said, for example, after... Um, but what what is interesting, for example, I just uh, had this uh, in in my mind when you when you said about swing of the pendulum, is this of course idea that also Russian people don't understand or don't really process this that like Russia had a civil war, for example. Oh yeah, exactly. and not so long ago, like less than hundred years ago. Yeah, like imagine and like vicious. I mean, officially from eighteen to twenty four. But some vicious fights were taking on, were carried on like late twenties. Yeah, like and vicious one, like you know, like like massive killings. Like, yeah, you know. more more Russians died during the Russian Civil War than during yeah. World War One. So yeah, that says a lot. That says a lot, and it's interesting. It's still in like Russian psyche. People just never discuss it. Hmm, interesting. But animosity, animosity around people is probably still there. Mm-hmm. Like there is still something. I mean. On a kind of like very micro level, there is something missing in society, and uh, there is no like you know. I mean, people can say it's civil, like a civil society. So just like just deep respect for people who live around you, because in Russia it feels like there is animosity towards people who you don't know, and they're almost like like oh fuck those people, like you know, yeah. almost everyone, like you know. But you never understand this because I guess it's very unhealthy attitude because those people, they compose the society, actually. They compose the same type of community. So, and for me, from thinking, like, you know, almost from a perspective of anarchy, in Russia, I think this perspective of anarchy works really well because you see the society where people don't agree on anything and the type of authority that the society needs is the one of authoritarian in nature, so to speak, mm-hmm. or, like, ultimate authority. yeah. You need to have someone who has the final say. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise they're going to just kill each other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is what, again, happened in in 20s and in, during the Civil War because they started just... Yeah, once central authority disappeared, all yeah. well, shit hit the fan. Yeah, even though, I mean, of course, uh, like Bolsheviks, they'd lost elections, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is actually something interesting um, that my history professor asked in class once, and she said, like, this is a question, and I don't have an answer, I'm yeah. asking you, maybe you'll tell me, because I can't understand that. Mm-hmm. The Russian Empire was so diverse before the revolution. Yeah. You had millions of nationalist mm-hmm. parties. You had yeah. socialists and like 10 different parties yeah. of socialists. You had the cadets, you had the <laughs> SRs, you had the Bolsheviks, yeah. Mensheviks, so many parties. Yeah. And many of them had way more support than the Bolsheviks. Mm-hmm. And how did this happen that this one very minor party mm-hmm. with very little support managed to take over and build this massive empire? Yeah. It's just, it's a very interesting historical conundrum. I guess they were very vicious, yeah, and they just it, yeah, it's 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 extremely interesting. I think so, yeah, and but but they definitely made it, but also with, it, yeah. with with violence, with a lot of violence, and oh, definitely the formation of KGB, and I mean they kind of like took the civil war seriously, and they could quite clearly killed one part of Russian population entirely. Like, you know, you'd also think about how many people left Russia. Mm-hmm. And brilliant oh, yes. people, like writers, poets, um, scientists, like, you name it. Like, and it still, of course, it still has an impact, like a ripple effect on, on modern Russian society. And the same thing ha- is happening now, when the big chunk of population, very smart population, like IT guys, like, you know, writers, poets, composers, they, they are leaving Russia 
uh, unmasked, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Of course, and it will also have a like ripple effects on on the current Russian society because people who are staying they ha- having this like moral compromise with themselves. They're just saying maybe I don't support Putin. I mean, it's kind of interesting. They could say maybe I don't support Putin. I kind of support war, but you know I'm going to keep silent because there's nothing for me to do, so to speak. Exactly. <laughs> What can I do as a single person? Yes, exactly. So of course this is like I mean Russia is an interesting country just to analyze and It to is. think about. And I guess the more you analyze, the more you kind of lose the whole understanding. <laughs> yes, um, it's it's just so diverse. Even modern Russia, which is. I guess in theory supposed to be this like modern nation state. It still has millions of Muslims and yeah. you know different national minorities yeah. and people who believe in like tribal rituals. It's still like the um, the remnants of the period where Russia was an empire, you know, yeah. conquering and colonizing Siberia. It's still with it to this day, yeah. and it's still a very diverse country. And it's not you know an, a modern nation state. We can speak of modern nation states like like France, for example. Yeah. True, but it's but it also has this component of uh, of a very powerful state, mm-hmm. and the state is institution itself. It's almost like imperial institution that is now super powerful. Yeah. It's almost like what I what I what I what I try to think. Of course, there is in the West this uh, understanding that of course there's some deep connection because pe- people in parliament and like just regular citizens that live, mm-hmm. and this connection is yeah they go to ballot and you know they drop like those uh, papers in the box and. This is the the connection that you make. I mean, you can argue that yeah, this connection is like very real and it's very serious. But you can also argue that this is like an illusion. Like you know, of course there is this connection. But I mean, do you really think that people who sit in the parliament at, uh, and have like very deep connection to the people, so to speak, like just your regular neighbors, so to so to say? Most likely not. <laughs> Most I mean, and like they do have, but this is like a very like illusionary connection, or in the yeah. sense, and who. Uh, who has uh, who has the power to decide, so to speak? Because of course, in the West there is a this tradition to think, oh, you know, it's like the citizens decide something. Like, but do they really decide something, or or is it like you know, all those elites that present those agendas to the population and they make it like like with COVID, for example, right? It's not like population knew that it had to uh, lock itself uh, up in in the apartment, but mm-hmm. like they said, like you know, this is what we have to do, and it's your responsibility, by the way, to do it, and everyone had to do it eventually. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, so something like but of course in Russia it's also like very obvious that the state is different type of society and people in the state um they have no connection to people like just regular people. That's why it's also interesting the whole sanction regime and when they target like, you know, Russian people, what they don't understand that like they don't have any connection to the people in power. Yeah, I guess the understanding is that They're gonna be pissed and you know storm the Kremlin and kill Putin and which introduce is, a democracy. I guess that's the understanding, which is yeah. of course wishful thinking, but that's I guess the idea. Which is hubris, and it also runs into a lot of contradictions because if they if they if they understand that Russia is like a dictatorship, how can dictatorship have like connection to Russian people? Like you know, because dictatorship implies that something like you know was stolen from the people, like this type of power. It, it it kind of is based on suppression of any other opinion, so to speak. Oh, and, I know. And in Russia, it's, it's pretty obvious. You can you cannot really go with a, even like you know empty sign to like you know like one like you cannot go to like you know uh, the red square and have an empty sign. You're going to yeah, be arrested. Yeah. It's going to be like yeah, people even up. people even like pretended <laughs> to be holding signs. But yeah, nothing. exactly. They still arrested. That's this is exactly what's happening. And of course, there's no way to channel your dissatisfaction because whatever you do you're going to be beaten up and arrested and yeah 
I was sent to front now, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to be uh, dissident in Russia. Yeah. And um, Well, but the sanctions, uh, I guess I'll play a little bit of a devil's advocate here. I absolutely agree that sanctions will not topple Putin. Yeah. But uh, I think Western politicians had to introduce them because imagine that you were a politician in Poland. Yeah. You were up for re-election and you didn't introduce yeah. sanctions on Russia. You would lose the election immediately. Yeah, I think you can, you should introduce sanctions, but thinking carefully not to sanction Russian people, so to speak. Like the, the moves like to sanction like MasterCards and Visa, uh, those moves like... I think it's impossible to target just the people in power because authoritarian mm. regimes yeah. have tremendous ability to redistribute the burden of the sanctions among mm -hmm. society. Okay. So... Um, I think it's it's pretty well proven in uh, IR literature that sanctions against totalitarian or authoritarian regimes don't work because uh, these regimes can redistribute mm. the burden and they will redistribute the burden on the parts of population that don't support them anyway. Okay. Uh, it's it's pretty simple, you know. If you yeah. if there are sanctions on mm. importing food, for example, mm -hmm. an authoritarian regime will take the a uh, smaller amount of food that they're able to import okay. and just redistribute it among their supporters. But, then, <laughs> so, but I mean, the sanction question, of course, is very interesting for me, and especially IR is a discipline, because I think there is a ton of practical evidence that the sanctions just don't work. No, I mean, they don't. It, I, I, at least if you, if, you, if you premise the idea on the basis that you sanction someone, like you sanction Putin, and either his regime will eventually collapse, or... It won't collapse, but it will lose. Oh, 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 I mean, I mean, they basically they basically like the whole concept on the idea that like Putin eventually will change his behavior, but like everyone understands from previous examples like Iran, North Korea, that it only amplifies his behavior, or it makes it even more confrontational, or it actually gives him opportunity to say, "Look at those people. They sanction not just me, but also they sanction you," which is which is just right. I mean, it's not like actually wrong way to say. So he gains even more support among Russian people. Um, I mean, the whole, of course, and I guess actually, I, I might be wrong, but from international perspective, international law perspective, the sanctions can only be made by the UN, by unanimous decision of the Security Council. That's what they did with North Korea, for example. But they couldn't do it unilaterally, so they're also kind of breaking international law. <laughs> Sanction regime should be, like, you know, international in, in its nature. But you know, you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> I absolutely know what you mean. I also had this. I also had this thought that it reinforces the narrative of Putin that he says, "Hey, look, these people are against yeah. you, the common Russian citizen." But actually, um, I've noticed a bit different uh, thing happening in Poland right now, with the EU withholding mm -hmm. money from Poland, mm -hmm. and the entire of entirety of anti-government opposition is like, "Good." Mm -hmm. It's good that we are sanctioned by the EU mm -hmm. because our country is breaking the law. Of yeah. course, the supporters <laughs> of the government are like, yeah, fuck the EU. But basically, every single voter of the opposition is like, yeah, it's great that we're getting sanctioned. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. amazing. So <laughs> I guess it's it's a different understanding here. And I wonder where, where the difference comes from that in North Korea, Iran, and Russia, people are like, yeah, you know, screw the West. They're hurting us. And people are like, yeah, it's hurting me, but like our government deserved it. I wonder where's, where's the difference. Mm, I guess the, the, some type of nationalism again comes into play because it uh, unifies true Russian society around Putin. And um, uh, I guess like the sanction regime after Crimea was kind of they tried to make it very smart in terms of they tried to target specifically Putin and his inner circle. 
but not like Russian people. So very careful in avoiding targeting specific Russians. Uh, but then, of course, after like the war, I, I mean, it also in a very long perspective, it just disunites people even more. Like, you know, now you couldn't really go to Poland, for example, as what we discussed, so just yeah. to the EU. And of course, like... And here we are in Poland. <laughs> and here we are in Poland, just because I, I I escaped Russia. Exactly. Way back in the day, in 2018. Actually, like, one of the reasons I left was, I, I clearly saw that some, the, the situation going to get worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, not get sadly, better. you were right. Sadly, I was right. So now, and now we have, uh, of course, the war ongoing... And at le- but at least I'm not <laughs> not in Russia, being on the Something, front. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and this also is an interesting question. We all also asked this question before. What do the people on the front actually think? Mm-hmm. What do they feel yeah. like? What are their motivations? Are yeah. they? It's just we have no insight into yeah. this. But it's the biggest. If you think from historical perspective, it's the biggest event in Russian history since ninety one. Since I agree. the collapse of the Soviet Absolutely. Union. Absolutely, this is the biggest one. This is the biggest one, and it's, that's why it has significant impact on you know Russian people and Russian psyche and people who are doing this, especially in terms of like they're actually participating in world politics. Are those people in the front? And Russia does have like this culture of glorification of war heroes, and it's just interesting to think like what what how do those people perceive the conflict? You know, like what like why are they actually fighting for? I mean, of course, you can say yes, but, you know, they have no other choice. But I also think it's lame perspective because, I mean, I don't believe that. I mean, I think like, yeah, 10, maybe like 25 percent of soldiers, they don't want to fight this war. But I think majority of soldiers are still fighting this war with some intention in their mind. So it's just interesting for me to just think about from Russian perspective as well. Of course, I understand Ukrainian perspective perfectly and i guess of course. it's, it's pretty clear. easier to be ukrainian now than to be russian yeah they are fighting to basically save their nation <laughs> yeah but, but I, I still think that the whole perspective also what made me think some some people of course argue uh, that make an argument that there is a certain element of civil war in this conflict like you know in terms of like if you think about the russian, soviet civil war <laughs> soviet civil war russian speakers living in ukraine and of course i thought like but new civil war in Russia is also possible. Like, in a sense, like, imagine there are going to be people in Kaliningrad that are going to get so pissed. They say, oh, like, you know, let's fight those motherfuckers. Like, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, you need to have some complete change in their attitude to the authorities. But, like, if Russian state gets really weak, it collapses. Like, you know, I could also see, like, people in St. Petersburg, like, yeah, I mean, we always wanted to be the EU. Like, you know, fuck those guys. I mean, yeah. I, I would rather be part of, like, Russian, I don't know, Northern Republic than part of, like, this, like, you know, stuff in the East, so to speak. And, like, as I remember, like, one, one Russian intellectual put brilliantly, he said just, like, he hopes that in, like, 50 years, like, we wouldn't need visas to go to to Siberia or whatever. <laughs> That's going to be very sad. <laughs> yeah. If the whole, the whole country just falls apart. But of course, it's also interesting, gives you perspective, because whenever you have this uh, consolidation of power, it also has like this drawback of being a little bit fake. Because something, because there is no real power on the local level, mm-hmm. and everything can really fall apart rather quickly, as it happened during Soviet period of time. Yes, I think like nobody, expe- nobody expected, expected it, and basically overnight the country yes. disappeared. But of course, there was a period of uh, like the swing of the pendulum, as you said, like extreme liberalization. Yes. I mean, some people go so far as to argue, like in eighty six or seven, like the Soviet Union became one of the most liberal countries in the world, mm-hmm. just in terms of you could print everything, you could. There was no authority, 
you know, supervising information. You could print everything. You can, like, you know, issue whatever journals you wanted. And, of course, people who study, like, culture, Soviet culture, late Soviet culture, it's a pretty interesting period to study. Yeah. There were all sorts of funky ideas going around, Nazi, Nazi ideas, I don't know, Stalinist ideas, anti-Stalinist ideas, what have you. Like, you know, everything. Everything was there. <laughs> everything was there. And, in a sense, like, the country didn't, it, 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 didn't, it, it couldn't really maintain this tempo of uh, liberalization because it didn't have this history of uh, liberalism, so to speak. So it just broke because it was like too much kind of like too much um, pressure, so to speak. Mm -hmm. It was just it, it was like it was like very intense living in this moment, so to speak. Yeah. And of course the money issue also was, was kind of important. Yeah, the economy also wasn't doing that great. Mm -hmm. So I guess we already sort of touch upon the topic, but in what direction is Russian society going right now? Yeah. It's not static. It's going no, no. somewhere. So what is the end point of this journey? I think now it's definitely going into this uh, pro-Putin direction. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's what we discussed in previous episodes. Of course, the whole point of this war is to make sure that the country is going into this direction. Because there's yeah. no way backwards. Because whoever comes into power, he has to choose... Uh, clearly the Putin's path. Or in other words, he has to choose to either continue this war, even if there is some peace settlement or, or some ceasefire, he's probably going to choose to, you know, to, to kind of like get a national, um, kind of like national, national support and then continue the war, for example. Yep. And there is no way, I, I don't see Russian authorities, you know, concluding this war with either Americans or the West in general. Or, or, or like... There's no way. There's only one solution, so to speak. <laughs> There's only one way for Russian society now is to be anti-Western. And of course, there is, there is some, some, I would say, almost like a path towards like a bigger conflict mm -hmm. with the West. Because if you think about their drafting people, they're preparing massive mobilization, they're increasing number of soldiers, number of troops. And of course you think about, but like, just you just try to think about okay, but what uh, what will happen to this country like in five six years? It'll probably be the same, but way much more aggressive, military capable, military aware, with the with the kind of knowledge of like oh no, we know how to fight wars actually. Yeah, with experience you know? gained. Yes, with no one else does. I mean, only Americans do, but not no no other nation can fight bigger wars in the modern era. And where does it lead us, so to speak? <laughs> it's a great unknown. <laughs> it's a great unknown. And, uh, of course, like, Putin's obsession with the war, because sometimes you hear him saying, like, you know, oh, the, the West always wants to conquer us. So if you think about, if he, if he can make a move where the West moves on Russia first, maybe what we discussed, like, for example, they use nukes in Ukraine, or they use, I mean, they try to conquer Baltics, or they use something in Baltics, and then, like, the West responds, and then, like, Putin can use it as the whole narrative of, oh, you know, they are again attacking us. Yeah, the second great patriotic war. Yeah, and I'll, I think it will definitely gain all the support. Yeah, yeah, I believe that. Totally. Yeah, but it's also what's surprising is to think that they still maintain, like, uh, they, they are fighting, like, a big European war, but at the same time, they maintain society, or they maintain economy. Yeah, and it keeps this running. Is, keeps running it keeps running and it doesn't slow down it's still it's still a big economy and it's still in a good in a good shape i would say mm -hmm. more or less um and this is yeah, of course it's interesting scary. how long it can last 
Yeah, yeah, and also where this country is going, like where will it be in five years? Like, and of course, it won't be that different. Even if there is going to be another guy in power, yeah, he, be it will be hard to move away from the path that Putin has chosen. So here we are. Here we are. But um, let's. Uh, we can also discuss, of course, like the longer arc of Russian of Russian history in terms of where is it going. I think. But there will be a moment in, in in Russian history in the future where, let's say, there will be some reaction reaction to the Putin's regime, mm-hmm. to the Putin's authority, and this reaction probably going to be some democratic one, or like this. How, how long do you think we'll have to wait to see that? <laughs> I mean, I, I I think even Putin's Putin's successor will be type of a democrat, or there will be if you think about like. Okay, when 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 Stalin uh, died in fifty three, so to speak, the system still survived for more than like thirty years. And you know, after Stalin, there was a period of type of Soviet liberalization, for example. Oh yeah, with certainly. Khrushchev and stuff. Um, so, I think this this is probably where like Russian society is going, so to speak. Even if Putin steps down, uh, like the guy who comes into power, going to have some liberalization going on, but still keep the general path. Keep the general path of uh, confrontational, confrontational path, probably. Yeah, I think that's pretty plausible. Very plausible. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> we'll live to see, I guess. Yes, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, yes. yes especially that's a good summary. We are not, uh, I don't know, get into the get, get into the front in new European war. Well, we're currently in a NATO frontline state. NATO frontline state. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, I, I I could see the Polish preparation for something big happening. Dude, like five percent of GDP for armament. Makes sense. They they will be. The first. Americans must be ecstatic. <laughs> I guess they are. I mean, finally, the West. Uh, they um, reinvigorated the idea of the West. Yes, they certainly did. It was it was brain dead, as Macron said. It was brain dead. Which but... I guess shows that the idea of the West is reinforced by the opponent, by the other, being the East. By there are them by American leadership also, in both good and positive, I guess way. <laughs> yeah. So, any other questions? I guess that that uh, that's it with my questions. Unless you have something to add that you still have. Yeah, on maybe your let's heart. let's uh, let, let's maybe talk about your experience with Russia. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I know that you have never visited Russia. Never. I hope you, even though I've been planning to. <laughs> I but, hope you um, will one day. But let's maybe. How did you get interested? And how, well, for how long have you been studying Russian, by the way? So my first contact with the language—it's kind of silly, but uh, it was in middle school, mm-hmm. and I was just bored during math class. Mm-hmm. And my uh, classmate with whom I sat at the desk—he uh, was from Belarus. Oh. <laughs> and what was his name? Uh, Mitya. Mitya. Mitya is like a Dimitri. Yeah, it's short for Dimitri, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, yo, dude, teach me some Russian. Like, this math is boring. Teach me some Russian. <laughs> he was like, yo, man, sure. Like, check this out. This is how I would write your name in Cyrillic. I was like, whoa, it's so cool. <laughs> uh, so he first taught me the Cyrillic alphabet. And um, I remember I would, uh, when I learned the Cyrillic alphabet, he and I, we would prepare, I don't know what's the word for it in English, in Polish it's called szczonga. It is something mm-hmm. that you prepare mm-hmm. to cheat on the exam. Yeah. So, something like that, yeah. <laughs> so, what we would do mm-hmm. is we would write our notes for a class, for an exam in Russian, mm-hmm. so like in Cyrillic. Mm-hmm. 
And if the teacher like caught us, mm-hmm. it'll be like, oh no, you know, it's just my Russian notes, you know, <laughs> like the teacher couldn't read it. So we're like, mm-hmm. oh no, it's just my Russian notes. And she'll mm-hmm. be like, oh yeah, okay, sure, whatever. Oh, that's so smart. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess that uh, it's a good way to learn the language. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I remember this was like my first uh, contact with the language. And then again, a silly mm-hmm. thing, I was like, what, 13? I read the uh, Metro books yeah, yeah. by Glukowski. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, like, this is like the entire, like this huge metro system is so cool. And I started reading about Moscow and its history. And I really got interested in, in mm-hmm. Russian history this way. Um, and I started learning Russian, I suppose, like taking classes mm-hmm. when I was like 15, something like this. Mm-hmm. I took classes for, for like one year. Mm-hmm. Then I stopped and I only like learned by myself from time to time. And then I got started again when I started university. Mm-hmm. And what got me super interested in this history is the fact that I knew almost nothing about it. Mm-hmm. In school, I wasn't taught almost anything. Mm-hmm. The only thing that I learned from school was basically Russia, bad, Poland, good. <laughs> yeah, um, that's what we do. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what, what we what we learn. I would learn about every single uprising against mm-hmm. Russian occupation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would learn again about every single partisan movement that fought against the communists, mm-hmm. about every single politician who was in opposition to the communists. And that's the lens through which I learned Russian mm-hmm. history. And when I discovered there's so much more to it, I was like, whoa, that's so interesting. Yeah. Um, and I still think this way because um, I obviously believe that uh, Russia is the bad guy here starting the <laughs> war. But I still think that people in the West, even in Poland, like they don't understand this country so much. Yeah. The only thing in this category, like, yeah, Russia bad. Yeah. But it's so much more. It's it's oh. so many different groups, so many different nation nationalities, so many <laughs> different regions with v- very interesting histories, uh, and even what we discussed equating Russia to the Soviet Union. This is just yeah. purely purely wrong. And I can assure yeah. you that ninety nine percent of people in the West are making this assumption that Soviet Union equals Russia. Probably, and it's just purely <laughs> wrong. And. I, I, I just really enjoy uncovering the fact, well, uncovering all the different fun facts mm-hmm. and fascinating stories that there are in Russian history mm-hmm. and also amazing achievements because there were many, which are in Poland and in the West, they're ignored <laughs> or basically uh, forgotten. So what's your favorite fun fact? <laughs> favorite fun fact? Oh, dude. <laughs> um, I guess maybe not the favorite, but one that I... Uh, learned recently while mm-hmm. writing my uh, BA thesis was that when the Americans were spying on the Soviet Union mm-hmm. during the Cold War, they used uh, hot air balloons to, and they installed cameras on the hot air balloons mm-hmm. and they just deployed it over the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And the Soviets shot down so many of these balloons mm-hmm. and they recovered so many of them, including photographic film. Mm-hmm. And the photographic film that they used was radiation resistant because the mm-hmm. balloons flew so high, it was mm-hmm. close to the edge of the atmosphere where cosmic radiation was a thing. Mm-hmm. And Soviets at the time, they could not develop a radiation-resistant film, so they Mm -hmm. could not take pictures in space. Mm -hmm. And the Americans provided them uh, (laughs) this film basically for free, trying to Mm -hmm. spy on them. (laughs) And then the Russians just took the American film, installed it on their own Mm -hmm. spaceships, and sent them to space. So the first pictures ever taken of the far side of the Mm -hmm. moon, taken by the uh, Luna 3 Soviet Mm -hmm. space probe, they were oh. taken by a Soviet space probe using American film wow. that they captured from American spy balloons. That's very nuanced. <laughs> I know, right? That's just the first thing that comes to my mind. Like a very interesting fun fact. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, the Soviet history is pretty interesting. It's super interesting, <laughs> and I think, of course, like Soviet Union was, I guess, in many ways, an evil system and murdered mur- murdered many millions of people. But there's more to it. People only yeah. see it through this lens, but there's way more to it. It's a country that lasted a few decades. So. Yeah, but I guess there was. I mean, I c- I could maybe share my experience from studies in Gimo, and mm-hmm. Gimo oh, was. Yeah. Basically, the school founded in 1944, so just uh, during the, the 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 war, so to speak, the Second World War, and its uh, design was to m- basically make Russian diplomats, like prepare outstanding people who can go abroad. But you need to understand that those people who they trust to go abroad, they should be hundred percent loyal. Mm-hmm. So they designed this whole school in such a like cruel military way, when like learning languages like. Etengimo uh, means to suffer. Like, you know, just... And then you can sense something weirdly, like, you know, this, like, kind of respectful authority when you never ask questions. Mm-hmm. Like, in the sense, like, you you just couldn't ask those questions because there is, like, there is no point in, in asking questions because there should be just this, like, um, unanimous respect for the authority, so yeah. to speak. Um, which... Yeah, when once I realized it, I was like, uh, that's not what I wanted." <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Um, that's not what I wanted. So, but yes, it's a, it's a very incredible, definitely. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Soviet history, but I think, of course, it can be very interesting. I think it's just um, misunderstood. I guess that's, and Russian imperial history is also misunderstood. Russia being viewed as a the singular entity for ethnic Russians, mm-hmm. which is also not entirely true. It was so diverse and so many different regions were governed yeah. so differently. That, For example, you had the Duchy of Finland, which was essentially independent yeah. just with the Tsar being the, the Duke of Finland. And the and, Polish constitution. Yeah, and the Polish constitution <laughs> for super liberal. Uh, actually, it didn't last long, I know. <laughs> actually, when you... yeah, this, But the Finnish yeah. <laughs> autonomy lasted quite long. Yeah. And uh, actually, not many people know, but when you look at maps of Europe from before World War One, Finland is being depicted as part of Russia, just, you know. Mm-hmm. But Finland was essentially independent at the time. Mm-hmm. Many, for example, mm-hmm. revolutionaries who were uh, wanted by the terrorist police they would just escape to Finland, mm-hmm. which was de facto part of the Russian Empire, but the Russian police could not arrest them there <laughs> because it was technically a different state. And not many people know that, how different the Russian yeah. Empire was. But people who governed Russian Empire, they were Germans. Oh, yeah, <laughs> certainly. It's actually interesting, whoever like kind of like runs Russia, they tend to be some foreign entity, which is interesting. It, 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 it certainly makes sense if you conceptualize the state as a different Go- type of society. Going back to the Vikings, by the way. <laughs> Going back to the Vikings, yeah. And it was like during Russian Empire, it was pretty obvious. All, all Tsars, they were basically Germans, and like maybe Nicholas II was half British. I guess he had like a British brother. Yeah. Um, I mean... <laughs> Interesting, though, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I, I do enjoy, like, reading about Russian history. Oh, yeah, that, that makes two of us. Yes, because, I mean, this period of history, Russian history, especially, like, 19th century, is very European, and, um, I mean, you could say the country was on the path to, as like, it was on the same path as other, like, Western empires. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like, in a sense, but then something drastic happened. Something changed, <laughs> yes. This drastic was this uh, desire to to become better part of the West. But it's also interesting. We can come back to this. Like, do you think uh, I need to ask you? Do you think Russia is the West or non-West? 
I am a huge <laughs> fan of listening to self-identification, and currently Russia self-identifies as definitely not the mm. West. Do you think so? I, mean, I think that they are very clearly making it making it clear that they are not the West. I, I think they're trying to say that they're better West. Like I mean, they are, they're Christian and they emphasize that they're Christian and Christianity is is it's, the West. Yeah, it's very intertwined with Western yeah. ideals. Yeah. Well, because they're saying like you know, oh, like those ideas about gender and gays, it's not real West. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, um, so, it's deviation. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's a very very interesting perspective. I mean. Um, and it sort of fits with the narrative, for example, of like Peter the Great, yeah, who yeah. Like made Russia Western. Yeah, but people who deny actually Russian Westerners are actually Americans, because for for them, yeah, like if true. you if you again think like Americans are at the forefront of constructing Western identity, for them it's important to say those people are not the West, and they are trying to reiterate it and emphasize it every time they can that Russia is is something separate, it's not part of the West. That's what, I mean, I think it's it's appealing to me, at least, to think mm-hmm. so. Because I think Russia definitely conceptualizes itself as just better West. It's yeah, like, you know, yeah, that's certainly true. I'm trying to say we are, like, you know, the, the like this type of, like, the West with, like, this gender norms is the wrong West. The, mm-hmm. the one with the family values. Like, and the same thing goes about, like, like, in a sense, Putin was one of the first guys who championed this idea. And, like, for example, Trump just took it. Yeah. Or built on the same principles. So to speak. Okay. So. Yeah, that's a convincing <laughs> point. I agree. Great. <laughs> yes. Um, like for me, and like uh, coming back to this uh, revolution, 1917, and of course, like you know, you think about like the country was developing, like like Russian Empire was developing as a, as a regular, modern kind of European state, uh, imperial state, but then suddenly they decided, oh, you know, we want to to take those Western ideas. Which is like, of course, like ideas about communism are Western. Oh and yeah, said, certainly. Let's implement those ideas, like you know, just implement them. <laughs> those people talking about communism, we're gonna make we, communism. We're gonna make it exactly. <laughs> Which is super interesting because I don't know how you can think that the country that attempted to implement communism is not Western because those ideas are deeply scientific. Because if you think about what they wanted to build, is like the most scientific. Accurate society. That's where Marxist legitimacy yeah. <laughs> came from, from science. Yeah, eliminating poverty, making everyone happy scientifically. I mean, implementation is a different story because I guess implementation got like kind of like boggled down with this like Russian imperial past and like you know Russian traditions and stuff yeah. like this. But the ideal was there, and it was very Western. Very well. Straight from Germany. Straight from Germany. That's why I actually think for Russia it's, all, it's also possible to, like, you know, to make this weird comeback when Russia in the future is going to say, hey, let's take, like, the, bri- the most brilliant new Western ideas that are denied actively by, let's say, people in the West. Let's try impl- to implement them. Um, I mean, I actually think I would love to return to this country. That impl- that's implementing <laughs> the most radical Western ideas. That, I would uh, love to visit. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day, maybe fifty, hundred years. Hopefully, we'll, we'll still live. Hopefully, we're still alive. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And we witness changes. Um, and Fingers hopefully, crossed. yeah, there is no other civil war. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. So I guess summing up the episode, uh, I would say that, I mean, actually Russian people also don't understand Russia quite well. <laughs> it's hard. I believe that. Uh, it's hard to understand. It's, it's hard to understand. 
There's yeah. too many factors to, to consider. And just from my personal perspective, I guess I, I, I am the guy who read quite a lot in Russian history, and uh, I try to understand it, but after a while you realize the more you read, the more opaque the whole concept of Russia becomes for you. Because yes. I guess it, it changes so quickly and so often, and then it uh, almost like grows and expands, it acquires, as, as for example with the modern Russia, you know, it's like basically the mixture of Soviet Union with Russian Empire, which are completely irreconcilable, as you might, as you may think, irreconcilable ideas. But suddenly, and yet it works. Suddenly they blended them together. <laughs> Again, this is like a very maybe modern move. <laughs> it is mishmash and fusion. Mishmash. So, uh, hope to discuss with you Russia again in the next episode. A pleasure in, as always. Not the next next one, but some next. In time. the future, for sure. Next year. Next year, exactly. Recorded on the on the New Year's Eve, almost. Almost, exactly. So, Happy New Year. <laughs> happy New Year, and yeah, stay healthy, I guess. We'll see you in the future. Bye. <laughs>